Hello, and welcome to Introducing Me. I'm your host, Sarah. I started this podcast to get to know other people and lifestyles while discovering more about myself. Each episode, I will give a new guest a chance to discuss their background, culture, interest, or whatever they want to talk about to help increase all of our own worldviews. Today, I would like to introduce you to Daniel John Carey. He was raised in a dysfunctional household, and after a rough childhood, he joined the Mormon church to quote-unquote fix his life. Uh, But now John is very happy to be without religion. So that's just a piece of his story here that he'll be sharing today and more details to come. So thank you so much, John, for being here today. Why don't you go ahead and tell the audience a little bit more about yourself? Thank you for having me on. I've been listening to your podcast and I like it. Some podcasts are hard to listen to, but yours I found very easy. Um, The reason I'm doing this is because I wrote some books and I just am sharing my story because I know other people would be helped. Some people would be helped by it and maybe it'll reach the right person. And if it could help one person, that would be good. Um, And I wrote a couple books, Dream Another Dream and Dream Your World. We could talk about that later. And um, all about redesigning your life and rising up from past tragedies and moving on, you know, discovering who you are and getting into who you are instead of what other people think you should be or, you know, what other people tell you you should be. Um, That's what what I'm here to do, I think. Great. I'm, I'm happy to have you, you know, kind of share and promote, you know, having a better life and, you know, figuring out who you need to be. So do you want to take us a little bit starting off with kind of being raised in the Catholic church and what your life was like that you completely decided to change religions? Oh yeah. Um, well, there's a story. Well, my parents were both only children and, um, my father's parents were from Ireland and my mother's were from Scotland and we, they had eight children. They went from having being only children to having eight children. And they were living a nice life. We weren't rich or anything like that. But we lived in Cleveland and um, things were okay. Like my father grew up in poverty because his father was um, in a severe drunk. And so he grew up in poverty in Cleveland. And um, my mother didn't grow up rich either. So they got it together and they had a... Um, we had a house in a nicer part of Cleveland, not mansion or anything. It was just like this nice neighborhood and everything was going okay. My father was a, um, a salesman, a real estate and insurance salesperson and residential real estate. But um, when I was four and my mother also was, she made her own money because she was an opera singer. She sang at weddings and funerals and got paid for that. And uh, she was about, she just had two albums um, spec albums recorded to show to producers in New York. She was going to go to New York and, um, they're going to try to get her. Some producers were going to try to get her a contract with a record company or something like that. But, uh, so, but when I was four, my father was driving drunk and he went, he hit a telephone pole and he went through the windshield and he injured his brain. And so he actually lost part of his brain. And then after that, he was, um, not a happy man anymore. And that shoved us into poverty. And a few months after that, uh, my mother injured her brain when she fell down the stairs when our house was burning. Our house was gutted by fire in the middle of the night. So 
here we are, were all of a sudden with eight children and two parents who had head injuries. And back then, they didn't really know that much about as much about the brain as they do now, even though the brain is still a mystery. Back then, it was even more of a mystery. And so we moved to a not as nice a neighborhood. And my parents just didn't, they didn't get the help they needed. Back then, you're like, go home, you're healed after like weeks in the hospital. And it doesn't work that way. Um, they they didn't get the help they needed. So we were in chaos. And uh, my brothers were all older than me. And they were, they became a problem. And my parents didn't know how to cope with life anymore. Anyway, my mother could no longer sing because she injured her, her vocal cord. So her joy was basically gone. Um, and my father worked in factories and things like that to keep us going but there were a lot of times where we were on food stamps and welfare and charities and stuff like that to get by and then my brother started drinking even i know that one of them was drinking by the time he was nine and the others were already drinking also my brother who was a year older than me didn't that i know of but um so yeah we grew up in a very dysfunctional household and it got really wild. And then I was in Catholic school. We were all in Catholic school until I was in fourth grade. And I don't know why, but our family stopped going to church. And then we went to public school and going from Catholic school where you have to obey the nuns and you have to wear a tie and you have to stand in, stand in line. You have to do everything correctly or you get you know, hit by the nuns or whatever. Um, and then going to public school where basically it was like, it was a culture shock and uh, kids you know, showing up like they just got out of bed, literally, you know, sometimes there would be, you know, there would be a problem with one of them because they're, they weren't being taken care of and they would have to be some kind of social services would get involved. And I saw this other stuff going on that I wasn't used to seeing. And then my brothers basically lost it and they started doing whatever they wanted. Their, the hair grew long, um, pot smoking started and so by the time I was in sixth grade, all that was happening and I, I was um, not supervised. So I did whatever I wanted. And when you're an unwanted, basically unwanted child, there was a lot of abuse too, because my father got a very bad temper problem after his accident. And um, my brother, who was a year older than me, got more abuse than I did, but we got it worse than anybody. Um, so there were a lot of things done to me by my parents and also by other people. And I was a mess by the time I was in uh, seventh grade. I, everything was just like the house was run down. And um, But in eighth grade, I got a newspaper route. And uh, I liked it. And I was delivering newspapers and things studied out with me. And I started learning how to read and retain what I read. I always got really bad grades until eighth grade. And I started re being able to read because I was delivering in the newspaper, carrying a transistor radio in the morning, getting up before sunrise and listening to the news on the radio while I delivered. And then I started realizing the newspaper stories were what were on the radio. And I started being able to understand that way. And that's how I learned how to really read. And then I started reading books. And um, but that was the original, the the first part of my background and by then no one was going to church and um we were just this wild family and a lot of the neighbors had well all the neighbors in our neighborhood didn't want anything to do with my brothers but they let me hang out with their children but
but not my brothers. And my brothers made friends with all the, you know, the worst kids from the surrounding neighborhoods. And the attic in our house was this party zone with beer and pot all the time. My parents' bedroom was on the first floor in the back of the house that was added onto the house. So they didn't really, they were just like disconnected. My father was always gone drunk or at the horse races or at the bar or at work or, um, and then my mother slept a lot. Unfortunately, she had very serious health, mental health issues and she wasn't dealing with life. But, um, so it went on from there. (laughs) And, um, one thing that did happen was when I had the newspaper route, um, in the spring of when I was 13, uh, there was a man who managed the apartment complex where I delivered newspapers. And this is very dark, but I won't go into too much details. But he got a hold of me and did things. And it was very brutal. And I didn't know what was going on. And then I abandoned my paper route. And um, then I started drinking and smoking weed within weeks. I was you know, hanging out with the bad kids. And nobody even asked me. And my parents didn't really pay attention to me. Nobody asked me why I stopped like waking up in the morning and going delivering newspapers and stuff. And um, so it went downhill from there. Luckily, I only got into weed and getting drunk on weekends with other kids. Um, but the rest of my high school, junior high school and high school was very, you know, bad, drunk, like pot smoking kid. Um, when I was 16, I hitchhiked across country after three of my brothers beat me up and they were in their twenties. They were still living at home. They were, you know, a mess cause our family was a mess. And I woke up early a few days later, I waited till my black eyes were healing and I had a bad limp cause they injured my back. And I, I hitchhiked to California on a very cold winter morning before sunrise. I just got up, packed a bag and went to the highway and stuck out my thumb. I had never been anywhere. And, um, that trip remains like a, a novel in my brain. And I, for the first time I had long conversations with adults before that I was really afraid of adults. And I, everybody was nice. I think they were, they thought I was more like 19, even though I was 16. And, um, and if they did figure it out, they didn't say anything. But I, I didn't feel at danger or anything while I was hitchhiking and I saw the ocean. I thought that I was going to have a short life and I wanted to see the ocean. And that was one of the main goals. I hitchhiked all the way to California. I could have gone to Florida or anywhere else, but I chose California because you always hear about it in songs and TV and movies and stuff. And uh, that I hung out a couple weeks and um, I met a, a a 19-year-old who was driving a Volkswagen van. And he's like, hey, you want to hang out for a while? We went all over Southern California, camped on beaches and stuff. Went on the Mexico, Tijuana. And uh, that was interesting to see that. Because Tijuana is still super poor. So you, that was a culture shock. And um, But I did go back to Ohio. I wanted to graduate from high school. And I went back to more violence. And within a few months, my nose was broken a couple more times by my brothers. When I was in high school, when I was in high school that year, I was in 11th grade. Um, one day, some of the kids in my art class were like, what are they doing to you? Cause I'd like, my high was halfway swollen shut. The teachers never even asked me about it. And, uh, they're like, you need to go to see the counselor. And I didn't know anything about the counselor, the high school counselor. And they told me where her office was. And I went down there and 
she had someone in her office. I could see through the windows of her office. And then this guy, this young boy got up and walked out. And then she was on the phone, but she waved me into her office. And I went and I sat there with my black eye and my broken nose and stuff. And um, she said nothing to me. She was on the phone, like talking to her friend about what color pillows and what color curtains she was going to get. And I didn't know what to do. So after an hour, the bell rang and then she handed me a paper and waved me out. And that was my visit with the counselor. I, I left the class. I didn't go back to my classes and I went walking. It was a very cold day, which felt good on my face because I had a swollen face. I walked for hours and hours and hours. And, um, and that spring, my father, who never spoke to me, saw me in the kitchen one day and said, um, so you're going to graduate soon, aren't you? And I said, no, I have another year left. And he said, well, when you do, I don't care if I ever see your face or hear your voice or know anything about you ever again. And then he walked out and I, I was, I already had planned and, you know, for a while that I didn't want to be there anyway, especially after I went on my hitchhiking trip. I'm like, I saw the outside world. So, um, I worked at uh, Burger King in high school and, um, saved money and all that stuff. And they did a lot of Catholic girls cause I, all the, there were a lot of Catholic girls working at Burger King and they always needed dates for their school dances. So they did a lot of Mormon, uh, a lot of Catholic girls in 12th grade. And then I graduated from high school. Nobody from my family showed up. I worked in a factory in the summer. And for a while, and then I left and I never went back to Ohio. I tried to make friends with a couple of my brothers who lived in California, who I didn't really know them, but that turned into a bad, they were just a lot of drinking and it was not safe. So I disconnected from them and then I was on my own. And uh, did you have any questions about all that? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely a lot um, to take in and to have gone through with some of those things at such a young age. Are you basically at this point now an only child? Yeah, I, um, well, 10 years later, I, re I was wondering, I wonder what happened to those people. So I connected with my parents. I did try to talked to my father once when I first moved to California, but when he realized it was me on the phone, he just hung up. <laughs> I thought maybe his, he would change his mind, but no. But 10 years later, I did reconnect and had some contact with them. And my father at that time, he had just retired. And then quickly after that, he found out he had a brain tumor and he died within a, several months later. I never saw him, um, but I talked to him a couple times on the phone. And um, I did stay in touch with my mother sort of. Um, and then I tried communicating with a couple of my brothers, but that just wasn't going to happen. Uh, one of my sisters died um, when she was 28. She had a heart problem and she had Down syndrome. And then my other sister um, luckily got out of there and got a university scholarship and graduated at the top of her class at a university on the East Coast. And then um, my brother, a year older than me, he died. Um, he actually starved to death when he was an adult in that house. And I don't really know all the details of that, but I got his death certificate and he was 90 pounds. And I tried to talk to my mother about it, but she was very mysterious. 
there was no answering from her. She was very stubborn and um, there were a lot of family secrets. So I really don't know exactly what went on, but um, yeah, he passed away. He had a very sad life, um, but I hadn't seen him in a long, long, long time or spoke with him either. And then I have all, some older brothers, but I don't know them. They're all I know is there's been a lot of alcohol mm-hmm. and, um, but I had to live my own life. And when I was in my early twenties, I was such a mess. I didn't, I wasn't prepared for life. Even when I was 19, I had this apartment and people would, I had, I don't know, friends, I guess people just hanging out, smoking, weed, getting drunk. Uh, one of the guys who would hang out there was his name was Tony and we would talk about, and his life wasn't going well at all. And he was living in a horrible apartment also, but he eventually changed his life around and he wrote a book called awaken the giant within Anthony Robbins. And he's now worth several hundred million dollars. And then another roommate, my first roommate is in prison now, years later, um, he had molested a teenage or a boy and a girl and he went to prison and he's still in prison that I know of. And then my second roommate years later robbed a store and murdered someone in the store who tried to stop him from murdering this, from robbing the store. And then the police shot him dead. And my third roommate OD'd on drugs. So those are the kind of people I was around when I was 19, 20, 21, my fourth roommate OD'd on drugs. Um, but yeah, that, that, that was my life. And I thought, I can't live like this. And um, I also had a situation where I was just really like out of control and with all these girls. And I was afraid that like there would be more than one baby or I, I was always sometimes afraid the phone would ring. I was just living completely responsibly and I didn't have any guidance that way. One day I did go to the library and I looked up what are sexually transit transmitted diseases? Cause I knew nothing. And I was learned about that. And I thought, oh boy, I don't want any of this stuff. And I was at that point where I just wanted to fix my life up. And I met some Mormon girls and they seemed very nice, but they were strict and they, they didn't drink, they didn't smoke. They didn't, you know, they didn't, there was no premarital action going on or anything that, and they seemed happy and the people there, friends were happy and their family seemed happy. And then I was like leaving this life that was a complete mess and a disaster with people who ended up being criminals. And um, so I leaned toward that. And I also, I had this like background in being taught about Jesus from being a Catholic, but I also had a problem with the Catholic, the Catholic church because of all the priest uh, abuse with boys. And it, that creeps me out because of what happened to me when I was little, several times with different situations when I was little, things happened. And I just didn't want to be around priests. I had a girlfriend when I was um, 20, and she got me to go to church, Catholic church just once, and that was the last time I went to Catholic church. But um, So the Mormon church, to me, at that time, seemed like it was a cleaned-up version of the Catholic church. And I ended up moving to Florida from California. I just wanted to see a different part of life. So I moved to Florida um, because I was there once when I was a teenager and I really liked swimming in the ocean and all that stuff and had some fun times with some girls there. And, uh, but 
um, I ended up getting involved with the Mormon church there and got a bunch of all my friends turned out to be Mormon. And we did everything together. We went like camping and snorkeling and played volleyball every Wednesday or something like that. And went to the beach together. We were always together, this whole group of like 20 to 40 young adult Mormons. And it became my life. And I did get baptized there in Florida. And then I moved back to California. And this thing with the Mormon church is the girls are raised who you should not agree to get married to a young man unless he first serves a mission for the church. Every young man must serve a mission is was the motto back then. And I wanted to have a family and I so I thought I should go on a mission. I didn't really know that much about the church, even though I joined and I was like learning as I got went along. There's a whole lot of things I was learning. I thought the the back then the guy who ran the church was Spencer W. Kimball. And I thought he was black, which didn't bother me at all. I didn't care about what color people were. And one day I was talking to some members of the church and they were, somebody mentioned like that the church used to not admit, let black men hold the priesthood. And I didn't know why. And I'm like, well, what about Spencer W. Kimball? And they're like, what about him? I'm like, well, he has the priesthood. And I'm they're like, yeah, but what do you mean? And I'm like, isn't he black? And they were just like, I thought that was absurd. I thought Spencer W. Kimball was black. And I I was like, oh, he's white. I didn't know. I didn't care. And so that was, I started learning about this tinge of racism in the church that made me uncomfortable. But one of my friends was a black Mormon who had gone on a mission. And I thought, well, if he doesn't have a problem, what's my problem with it? And I talked to him a little bit about it and he gave me some explanation, but I still didn't feel right about it. Most of the people in the church were white Caucasians, and um, which is also different from my experience with the Catholic Church, at least where I went. Um, so I ended up agreeing to go on a mission. I was living in an apartment on the beach here in Santa Monica, and I was going to college and driving limousines to get by to make money and driving like going movie stars and stuff, going to college, going to church. And I was so involved in the church that all my friends were Mormon then. And when I set, thought about going on a mission, they all encouraged me to go on a mission. And I thought maybe it would be the right thing to do. There's also this thing where um, the, the girls really are, you, you know, girls were pushing me to go on a mission. And so I told the bishop I'd like to go on a mission. And then all of a sudden, like, first thing you have to do is you got to go through the temple which is different from the church, the chapels. The temple is where you take out your, it's called taking out your endowments, which is like you go through these classes and I guess, but they're, they don't tell you anything about it. It's supposed to be secret, but not, or sacred, but not secret, whatever that means. And I went in not knowing anything. And that's when I learned about the sacred underwear. I had to go to the store at the temple to buy underwear. <laughs> I didn't understand that. And they're like, they'll tell you about it in the temple. So I go in and the first thing they have you do is they take you to a locker room and you're supposed to take off all your clothes and put this white poncho thing on. I didn't know what was going on. I didn't know why I was in a white poncho and naked underneath 
And then this, I, they introduced me to this older man and he takes me into this room and he has this vial of blessed oil, oil, olive oil, I guess that they prayed over and he's dipping his finger in and he's saying like a prayer, something he was whispering. I couldn't understand what he was saying. And he's touching like my forehead and blessing different parts of me. And then I didn't know until years later that he wasn't supposed to touch my privates, but he did. And I, that freaked me out. And why am I here with this guy whispering? And I don't know what he's saying. Years later, I found out he was supposed to whisper. He's supposed to tell you what he's saying because he's blessing your body, your brain and your thoughts and your, your heart and, you know, speak good words. And I think they touch your chin or something. But um, so then I go out to the locker room and they're, they're like, okay, now you can put your, the underwear on. And it's like these long, they go down to your knees and it's just a regular t-shirt, but there's like these sewn patterns at the belly button and the breast and on the knee, which I didn't understand. And then they take you through this class. You put all these white clothes on and then they take you to this sort of classroom and a sort of church sort of thing with this big movie screen. And you watch this thing about Adam and Eve and the creation of the world and the purpose of life. And you commit to serving the church and living your whole life as a a servant of the church. And your whole life is supposed to be about building up the, the church of the kingdom of God on earth. But also there's these handshakes that you have to learn. And then there's these symbolism things, these hand movements. And one of them was drawing your thumb across your neck and you threaten your life to be taken if you were to tell anyone what you just learned. So, and then you also slit your belly with your thumb symbol symbolically. And you also say something and you bow your head and you say yes. And I was, there was like maybe 50 other people in the room and I didn't know what was going on and I'm just doing what they told me to do. And you put this robe on and you put this green apron thing on that represents Adam and Eve in the garden of Eden. Then they take you to this curtain after all that's done and you're freaked out enough and you shake hands, you hold hands with someone on the other side of the curtain. You can't see them. It's a white curtain and it's a man. And he like whispers stuff in your ear and you're supposed to like tell him certain things that another person sitting next to you is telling you what to say to that guy. And then eventually the curtain is parted and you're taken into this big room, which is the celestial kingdom room. And it's just this like big white living room with chandeliers that cost hundreds of thousands of dollars. And that's supposed to be like a spiritual room and you're supposed to be happy and everybody else is there. And I could tell that other people who also had been through the temple the first time were as freaked out as me, but you had committed not to talk about it or else you, you're, you threaten your life to be taken. And so I didn't know what to do. And I, I was wondering what kind of people I'm around. And I, I didn't even, I was like, does the church have a group of assassins who kills people who tell the secrets of the temple. And I didn't think anything in the temple was that like shockingly secretive. The weirdest thing was the thing about having my body blessed by some old guy saying prayers, whispering prayers and touching my body parts, um, which they should have told me about, but they, you can't be told about anything. So then I went on my mission and um, I got called to the new England mission which wasn't very much different from Ohio where I grew up as far as the plants and everything. But the people are there. It's a different kind of a culture than what I grew up in. Um, 
and you spend a couple of years, you get assigned a roommate who you're supposed to be with 24 hours a day. You don't know them. You never met them before. And every couple of months you get switched to another roommate. You get switched to another town. And you're all you're supposed to do is all day long, try to find people to learn about the gospel and try to get them baptized into the church. And um, it was just, it was supposed to be a very spiritual experience, but I didn't feel anything. I just thought I was on a mission doing this sort of like a recruiter for the church. You have to dress in a white shirt and tie every day, except for Monday, you can go and do your laundry and like go grocery shopping. <laughs> um, and I was with people a few years younger than me, and they had never been away from mommy and daddy. A lot of them didn't know how to cook. I had been a private chef when I was 20. I was Peggy Lee's butler, which um, I was at that time I was working when I was 19 and 20. I was working on movies as an extra and I had braces and I looked really young. So they're always booking me on TV shows and movies to play a teenager, like a high school student or whatever in the crowd scenes. And then there was a big strike in Hollywood and I signed up with um, an ex uh, temp agency. A friend of mine did it and he's like, you should sign up with the temp agency. They just get you work on offices and things. And so, um, and sometimes you work in a factory doing something, but one day the temp agency called me and they, they're like, Hey, would you mind working in a private home? This woman needs uh, help with her um, stuff in her office that she has in her house. And I said, I don't, yeah, sure. Fine. And then I went and it was Peggy Lee's mansion up in Bel Air. You know who Peggy Lee was? Mm -hmm. Yeah, a singer from the, she was popular in the 60s and 70s. Um, but now she was older. She was in her 60s and she was a recluse and she basically had no family. She had a daughter, but her daughter left town a while ago. I guess they had a big fight. And so then I was with this rich, lady living in her house she asked me to move in she she's like hey could you cook her butler had just quit this guy named bernard lafferty and so i'm like i guess and i kept my apartment but i lived there for like five and a half months and it was crazy she spoke about it in her interview she had problems with alcoholism and drugs but when i was living there she was supposedly sober but really she was on a lot of pills and her mood swings were crazy and she was never not home <laughs> and um, she started telling people that I was her son. She had a maid, an assistant, an accountant, two um, other women who worked there, and then me. And there was this lady who, who hung. I took care of the kitchen and the food, and I made food all day and went grocery shopping and stuff. But there was this one lady who hung out at the house and with me a lot. And she would like help me make food or like we would just hang out and talk and doing stuff. And I didn't know who she was. Her name was Doris. And it turned out she was Doris Duke, the wealthy woman. She was worth several hundred million dollars, but I didn't know. And I think she enjoyed me because I had no idea who she was. And I thought she was somebody who worked for Peggy Lee before me. And then Bernard Lafferty, the former butler, was always calling me and telling me how to do my job. And we would talk and stuff. And after I quit, Bernard went back and worked for Peggy Lee. And then eventually he worked for Doris Duke. And then when Doris Duke died, she left him $450 million. There's two movies about it. One is with Susan Sarandon and Ray Fiennes playing Bernard Lafferty and Doris Duke. And the other one's with um, uh, Lauren Bacall and Richard Chamberlain. The one with Lauren Bacall and Richard Chamberlain is completely ridiculous. It makes Bernard out to be this evil guy who like made this old lady 
assign his her will over to him. The one with Susan Sarandon and Ralph Ray Fiennes is more real. I ended up meeting Ray Fiennes because I work on movies and TV shows. And um, I told him, I know Bernard. And he's like, you knew Bernard? And he wanted to know everything I knew about Bernard because he had played Bernard in a movie. And he's like, I never met anybody who knew him. And, um, but yeah, so anyway, um, <laughs> do you have any questions about all that stuff? <laughs> well, I mean, I think it, you know, it makes sense, um, with the background that you have, why you went to the Mormon church, why everything seemed to be like, this is the way to get out of the life that I'm in, even though, you know, you had these moments of, you know, working and but weren't necessarily surrounded by the best people so what's kind of the after been like because you are no longer with the mormon church well i stayed in a few years after i came back from my mission but it was like i went to a singles ward which is all the young adults who aren't married yet and you're supposed to like go there on sunday instead of a regular family ward with married people and children and i dated a lot and i ended up um but there was a situation. I also went to Brigham Young University in Utah for a while, which is all other experience. I dropped out. Um, Brigham Young was this really extremely racist man back in the 80s, 1800s. I didn't know his history until later, but he was extremely racist and he had ordered like people killed, including some American Indians and his attitude toward African-Americans and anyone with dark skin was that they were cursed by God. And, um, but I ended up, my situation was once I got off my mission, I thought, oh, I'm good. Now I could like get married. And, but it turns out there's a lot of Mormon girls whose family don't want them dating a convert. They want their daughter dating a legacy Mormon. And I didn't know what that meant. They want their daughter dating someone and marrying someone who grew up Mormon and has a Mormon family and the two families could blend together and all this stuff. And there was a girl who I really liked a lot, but her mother was dead set on not getting, letting her marry someone who was a convert. She was to marry a, a legacy Mormon, and it was a serious thing with her, and that wasn't going to work out. Her mother got in the way of us big time. And I dated this other, well, I wanted to date this other girl, and she said, you know, I, I think... Um, if you want to get married, you might want to get a convert or bring a girl into the church and marry her. <laughs> so that is a serious situation going on. But I did end up getting engaged to a Mormon girl who grew up Mormon. Um, but her parent, her father wasn't, they weren't really that big into the church. And um, she started drinking and that ended that. And I was on my way out anyway. And I was also having a lot of health problems because I had I found out in my 20s that I had kidney sir, kidney disease, a genetic kidney disorder, deformities and stuff. And so I got really sick and I ended up, according to doctors, I died in the hospital one day and um, I survived, came back to life, according to them. Um, I remember it as sort of a surreal dream of like coming back and w- sort of waking up and, but um so that's how I got into, I had to like completely realign, like what was my life going to be about? I didn't, I wasn't into this religion anymore. I had to relearn nutrition. I had to like rediscover like really who I was not tagged onto by a religious 
belief system. Um, and I started becoming happier and healthier and got got friends who weren't religious. And um, I started working for newspapers and magazines in LA and learning so much about publishing that I ended up joining a publishing organization in an international publishing organization called Publishers Marketing Association. And it's publishers and marketers and um, book designers and editors and all that stuff, distributors and writers and all this, all these people. But I met a lot of people through there, including Jeff Bezos when he was starting amazonbooks.com. And uh, so I got into a whole other part of life, but I learned so much about nutrition because this one doctor told me they wanted to get me, give me a kidney transplant. But one of the doctors said, the only thing I see is if you get rid of all animal protein. And that helps people like with your kidney situation. So I, I didn't know that I became a vegan, but I became a vegan because I started eating with plants. And with the publishing organization, I started editing books for publish for writers who are writing books. And I started helping them write books. And I ended up helping a lot of doctors and nutritionists write books. And that's um, how I got into that and writing my eventually starting to write my own books that took years and years and years. And that's how I ended up writing dream another dream and dream your world dream. Another dream has a lot to do with like recovering from child abuse issues. Dream your world is less about that, but still it's, I use quotations from throughout history mixed with my writing and sort of an editorial style um, to cover a bunch of topics about life and life theory and what to do with your life and how to discover who you are and that type of thing. And then I ended up also writing a book about nutrition called Plant-Based Regenerative Nutrition. And that came out this year, actually. Um, so I, my life is a lot different from what I grew up as, this child who could barely read and um, became the person who writes books and helps people write books. But I also started writing screenplays and I got involved with screenwriting. And at one point I worked for MGM United Artists and in the international marketing department and also in the screenwriting department, taking care of all the screenplays that they bought back then. It was all on paper still. And then I ended up working as the assistant to John Kelly, who is the assistant or the president of United Artists. And he was a great boss, really good guy. And he taught me about, told me things about screenwriting. And I started attending a screenwriting workshop. And then um, there were a couple screenplays I wrote that were being passed around Hollywood. And I met with a lot of famous people and, but none of the, none of my screenplays got made. And then I dove into like working on TV shows and movies as a stand in a photo, double an actor and background actor and all this stuff for years. I did that, but then I got reinvolved with screenwriting. And then I started my screenwriting workshop called screenwriting tribe in 2016 and i've been running that for almost eight years and um now it has over a thousand members and i wrote a screenwriting book that's used as a textbook in colleges and film schools which they chose the book i found out about it or they different universities emailed me or colleges emailed me and told me that they're using my book as a text so that's cool. I came out with a second edition of my screenwriting book in 2020. And um, I continue to run my screenwriting workshop. So I'm an example of my theory is like, no matter where you came from, if you came from 
rich or poor or troubled or a war zone or wherever you came from, you still have to discover who you are, you know, educate yourself somehow. There's YouTube University. You could learn everything from building a house to programming a video game to, you know, bike mechanics or whatever. But, um, or a, go to go to college, go to a trade school, learn a trade, teach, your, teach yourself something. A lot of people who are musicians taught themselves. And now they're world famous musicians who are self-educated. But um, you have to decide what your life is going to be. You have to formulate your life. Nobody's going to do it for you. And um, that's what my books are about, Dream Another Dream and Dream Your World. Also, um, hopefully it'll help people with that aspect. So yeah, my life went through some changes. Just a couple changes. I mean, you you definitely have come such a far away. Um, to, you know, here through the adversity that you've worked through, that you're in a good place now. And you did mention that you wanted a family, um, and that was kind of you know one of the things you were initially looking for in the Mormon Church. Do you now have your own family? No, I never had children. I was with someone for seven years, um, off and on who had couldn't have children and then yeah there were different situations but i ended up really wondering do i want children and um i really ended up thinking maybe not <laughs> um and i also have these genetic disorders my kidneys and i also have a tendon genetic disorder that affects my tendons i'm like do i want to pass this along to a child but no, I, I never had children. I helped like raise my friends' kids for many years and stuff like that. I was like this forever uncle to like a bunch of different kids. And um, yeah, but I never had my own. I had girlfriends who had children, <laughs> but no. I mean, I think it's it's okay as you're determining who you are, what, you know, is the best path. And it might not be what you had once thought. Um, now you've obviously shared a lot of information and I'm sure you could share even more before I wrap things up. Is there anything else you would like to share with the listeners? Um, no, just if you've had a troubled life, don't let it, that doesn't mean that's who you are. If you've had a troubled childhood, that doesn't mean that's who you are either. You were, you were a child you thought as a child. It's not your fault that you were mistreated as a child. You didn't have the reasoning that the, you know, you can't, if you have problems with childhood trauma or issues, there are ways of helping yourself with that. Um, there's, you know, organizations, there's 12 step programs, there's books, there's, you know, what helped me also was I've gone to therapy and, the one that really helped me was a Jungian, Jung, Jungian trained psychologist, Carl Jung, um, the psychologist master from a hundred years ago or wherever he lived. But um, the teacher who, the psychologist who I went to who was helpful studied Jungian psychology. I don't even know how to say it. it's a German name. Um, but yeah, seek out what will help you advance and get away from your troubled past or even if you didn't have a troubled past and you're trying to figure out what you want to do with the rest of your life take care of yourself stay away from drugs luckily i didn't get into drugs just marijuana and pot or drinking when i was younger 
but um, plant-based nutrition, my book, plant-based regenerative nutrition might help you. My dream another dream book might help you. Um, but yeah, help yourself and go to the library, see what books you gravitate toward, you know, see what your interests are that way. That might be helpful and um, create the life that you want to lead. Yeah, I think that's some great advice for lots of people to be able to hear, whether, like you said, it started with a troubled life or it's more just trying to figure out who you are. Now, at the end of all my episodes, I do ask my guests a random question. So my question for you is, what are your must-have snacks for a road trip? <laughs> um, bear bars. <laughs> my friend actually started a company called Bear Bar. And they're um, raw vegan nutrition bars. They're not sweet. They're savory. They're like a salad snack. But I, I, I've been eating those recently. But I always have to have because I have kidney disease. I eat very cleanly. I have a garden. Sometimes I make stuff and bring it with me. Um, but it always has to be plant based. Oranges. <laughs> bring oranges. All right, that brings this episode to a close. So of course, if you would like to find John's books, a link to um, his books on Amazon will be in the description. So he mentioned all of those for you. If you have more interest in those topics, feel free to go check those out and see more information. I'll also be leaving some social media links for John as well. He's on Twitter, Facebook, Meetup, those sort of places. So those links will be there as well. And of course, if you'd like to connect to the podcast, our website is in the description. It brings you to our social media. We are on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. So feel free to go follow those pages. Of course, the website also brings you to all of our past episodes and resources and social media and stuff like that. So a good place to find out more information about different people's stories. And if you would like to share your story and be a guest on the podcast, the best way to reach me is via my email that is directly in the description. And if you would like to support the podcast monetarily, there is a link to do that as well. So thank you so much, John, for spending time with me today and to my listeners for taking the time out of your day to hear a new story. Until next time. Bye. Thank you for having me on. Bye.